Two girls, one ghost. Two girls, one ghost. And we are your ghostesses. <clears throat> That's <laughs> here I am. That's Corinne with her grand entrance. It Graceful. was phlegm. I went on a run, and I oh don't do God. that. So you're a productive <laughs> girl breathe. today. You've been very, very productive. I'm very impressed. Yep, that's what happens when you set your alarm for six a.m. on a Sunday. Yeah, I did not do that. I was up at seven. You beat I want to start doing that, though. I really like waking up early. As much as I hate when the alarm goes off, I'm like, oh, my God, why did I do this to myself? You get so much done in the first like, three or four hours that you're awake because no one else is awake. And then by the time it's like 10 or 11 and people are like, oh, I want to do things. You're like, oh, my gosh, I actually can because I got everything done I needed to do. Yeah, Nick and I were just talking about this, especially in the week, though, too, because like I work from – 8 to like 8 p.m. and then I don't get home until 9 p.m. and there's no prediction predicting what I'm going to be doing in my life like I could be working until midnight I don't know so I have to wake up early in the morning to work out but it's actually really nice like I've been waking up at like 5 30 I go to yoga and then I have a few hours I can like enjoy coffee I can read a book or I can do more work I can research for the podcast that's typically what I do right yeah. after the gym I have like an hour period block before I have to start walking to work and that's like the time to cram. Crunch yeah. time. Crunch time. Oh my gosh, I just wrote a scene, which obviously won't happen and stay because it, we're like Frankenstein writing, but I just wrote a scene where in the morgue, someone ad- describes uh, the way that per- the person was choked as her hy- hyoid bone was crunched. Ew. Like a can of Pringles. Ew, I'm not writing Pringles again. <laughs> that's a lie. It won't last. I've just been writing all weekend and my mind is crazy. What's it crunched happening? like a can of Pringles. Like the bottom of the can of Pringles. You know how like the little crumbs? Oh, oh! I was picturing like you just taking a big stack and just smushing it with your hands and the whole thing going. You could do like that too. Crunching. I mean, let's test it out. You know what? Now when I think of Pringles, I actually think of I'm a big Pinterest person still. Hmm. Um And I always look at their life hacks. And one of the life hacks that circulates around every single holiday season is taking an empty Pringles can and, you know, washing it out or whatever so it doesn't smell like Pringles. And then you can make homemade cookies and stack the cookies in them and then wrap the Pringles can with wrapping paper. Oh. And it's super cute. And that's what you can give out to, like, your neighbors or whoever you give little treats to. That's a great Halloween thing, too. I cannot freaking wait for Halloween. Today on my run, guess what I listened to? What did you listen to? The Ghostbusters theme song. That's how I kicked <laughs> my run off. The entire time? Just on the loop? On repeat. Dude. Yep. Oh, my gosh. I just imagine. <laughs> You'd be a great ghost hunter. No, I wouldn't. You like, know I'm a chicken. No, I push like- you first every time we go anywhere. It's like a restaurant and there are families <laughs> eating. I'm like, Sabrina, you go in first. <laughs> But I'm just imagining you like getting amped up by the song, like just like in your room by yourself dancing and then like, I got this. Let's go. Let's do it. My pregame to the ghost hunting would be epic, but the actual act of ghost (laughs) hunting would not be very fun to watch. I think it would be fun. Oh, thanks, Sabrina. Or I'd be dead because you pushed me first. So. (laughs) 
I wanted to say something, but I don't want to give away what our topic is yet. <laughs> are we are we in New York on this during this show? Are we? Oh my we god, we are yeah. recording a few weeks early because we've got a New York show. Yeah, I think we'll be in New York. My god, when this episode I'm really comes out. scared. It's our very last show that we have planned. Yeah. So it's not to say that we won't do live shows again, but I think we need to take a break for um the near future. The near future. For a variety of reasons. We're both in our new careers. Yeah. Getting a little bit busy. And then also, I have a very hard time with live shows. <laughs> Sabrina's really good. So when we're backstage, before we go on, because we get to the theater, we're like backstage like an hour early before people, as mm-hmm. people are like shuffling in. And Sabrina will sit there. She'll dance to the music. She'll like enjoy her moment just sitting there. And I'm like reading through my notes. I'm shaking. If someone tries to talk to me, I'm like, I can't come up with a response i am the most nervous it's going to age me we also both threw up before the nashville show we did that was bad we don't know if it was the food we ate that day if it was nerves i think it was a mix of a variety of things yeah we had mixed alcohols the night before although we were not drunk we did have wine and then we also had whiskey i did not have whiskey oh i I had vodka (laughs) I had vodka. And then we also had beer at the bars. And then we also had beer. Okay, so we had three drinks and all of them were different. (laughs) And then we were eating a lot. And it was more than I was used to eating because I wanted to try everything. Oh, my God. And then you and I were both had just fallen in and we were a little sleep deprived. And then also we were just extremely nervous. So I think those four things equal throw up in the parking lot behind Zany's Comedy Club. (laughs) I at least threw up in a toilet, but... (laughs) Oh, I didn't make it that far. Yours was, you know, you're just a graceful person. I leave, what's the, what's that little like saying? It's like, she leaves a trail of glitter wherever she goes. <laughs> you leave a trail of vomit wherever you go. <laughs> mm. New quote. Why doesn't anyone want to kiss me? <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, what are some of the things we should do when we're in New York? I guess this episode's coming out while we're in New York, so we can't put a call to action for people to give us i know it's too late we could post on our facebook well, we group. have to we have to find a haunted place we have to go do something we should spooky. and i also want to go i know that we might not have time but i want to go to that place that you went to with your mom oh sleep no more yes it's weird you don't have to go with me i will go alone i don't know if you'll want to go alone really i mean you you like when you're in there you're alone but i think you're gonna need someone to like regroup with at the end okay <laughs> all right that's a spooky experience. We could do that. That's haunted. It's not, but it feels haunted. Yeah. We can look for other haunted places in New York. Okay. I'll go to haunted places with you anytime. We can go over to Levain Bakery, grab a couple chocolate chip cookies, and head out all energized and sugared up to find some ghosts. Oh, my gosh. I can't. I can't, I love New York food. New York is good. I will say there are some that people really like that I'm like, mm, those weren't my favorite, but then there are also some like super hidden gems my favorite to this day and it always will be is the street cart falafel i've i've never had that okay first stop so street cart falafel right off the plane second stop levain bakery third stop artichoke pizza i'm not going to new york and not having oh my god pizza. i have to go yes we're going have you not been no wow we're i'm talking going. to big i've been once i've been one time <laughs> actually maybe i went twice in that one trip but it's so good. We're going to go to Artichoke. Yes. And then, I don't know, you're from New Jersey. What else do we do there? Well, it's my sister's birthday that weekend, too. So we'll probably do brunch on Sunday. 
All right, boozy brunch, boozy brunch, boozy summer haunted brunch. <laughs> We'll be drunk at our live show. <laughs> Woohoo! Let's just no. keep this train rolling. We won't. We will. No, maybe we won't. we'll take a shot before. All right, Sabrina. I predict that our live show will be a great one. I predict that this episode will be a great one. I predict <laughs> that this episode will be about premonitions. I had a dream that you on the podcast said that you predicted that this episode was going to be about premonitions. Wow. And here we are. Amazing. Wow. We both have the ability to have premonitions. I think Whoa. we're both super high spiritual vibrations. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> All right. We're finally doing it. We've referenced it plenty of times. Premonitions. It's so interesting. The people can feel, they can think, they can have these sort of things enter their mind and know that something's going to happen or see something and it stays with them. And then eventually that thing happens. And it's like, well, that's not even deja vu. That's looking forward. Right. But the crazy, crazy thing that like, I don't think there are answers to this, but the crazy thing about premonitions for me is I have dreams about things and I'm like, oh, that felt really real. And like, oh, that was scary. But how are you supposed to distinguish that from a, what a real premonition is? And I'm sure there are some people who like kind of built their their ability and understand it more. But like if it's a one-off thing that then happens 30 years later, how how do you know? I don't know. Well, some of them, I feel like there's some like dreams or experiences where it just is so burned into someone's memory. It's like, okay, we read a listener story and it was a girl when she was young, she had been in her grandparents' basement and she like watched the news and she was yes. like, with a train and all that. And then a few years later, that exact thing happened. Mm -hmm. I think we did like a, a whole encounters episode about it. We must have. Or we did something because I remember reading all those stories. Oh my gosh. I need to, I'm holding, actually, let's do a, like a quick little ma'am a mail. Ma'am a oh. mail. I'm literally holding these crystals that were sent to us from the strange case of and it's this woman, and she has this, like, beautiful site. It's on Etsy. Oh, she's one of our Patreon donors, too. Yes. And she sent us – her name is Laura. And she sent us these – it's so beautiful. It's She said that they could be hung up like a necklace or hung up somewhere close to us. But she makes jewelry using crystals, and she made us these crystal necklaces. They're so cool. They're so cool. And they have black tourmaline and amethyst. And she said the black tourmaline is used for healing and protection and also dispels and deflects negative energy. And then when they're paired with clear quartz or amethyst, that's good. And amethyst is good for anxiety and it clears. <laughs> Sabrina's literally rubbing it on her forehead. Amethyst <laughs> is good for anxiety and, it, and clear quartz is prized for its ability to clear the mind and negativity and it also amplifies healing vibrations. So she said we should use these stones or keep these stones close to us to make us feel safe when we talk about scary and uneasy topics. And you laugh at me for rubbing it on my face, but that's as close as it can get. Okay, well, don't do it if you're sweaty because the black tourmaline's not supposed to get wet. It's I'm not sweaty. Who do you think I am? I don't know. A greasy human. That's kind of true. Greasy like the artichoke pizza we're going to have in New York. <laughs> we look ridiculous. We do. It's like one of those jade rollers, the face things. Yes, I really like it. I feel better now. I know. Me too. I actually always have a crystal with me. Do you? Keep it in your pocket? No, in my, like I have one in my backpack all the time. I just, whenever I'm driving, you know, you know how I feel about driving. You got to have one. Yeah. I need some. I really want to get like a copper 
necklace chain so that I can oh maybe I should do that before our New York show oh that would be cool. so I could wear this it's just so beautiful so thanks Laura yeah thank you we're keeping it close to us now while we're talking premonitions the other okay so the the other crazy thing about premonitions because when I was doing research about it it was so many of them are about plane crashes mm-hmm. and I I was just like nope 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 because I cannot do that because I feel like I heard a story or someone like sent a story about like the premonitions of like 9-11 and there are so many about there are 9/11. so many and now like every time I get on a plane I like get nervous and I'm like what how do I know and like I just like what should I should this be the plane that I'm getting off of and then I know I can't I know. live my life that way you but go it's into just, your head about it yeah, yeah I know and then there's also plenty about really large natural disasters like for example when the tsunami hit Thailand, I know I've talked about this before, mm-hmm. but one of my mom's friends, she had this very vivid dream the day before the tsunami that terrorized her. And it was all this water coming on shore and sweeping people away and people were dying and it was just Whoa. awful. And she was seeing people drowning. And she woke up the next day and she was really affected by it. And she told her brother and her brother was like, oh, it's nothing like whatever. Just it's a scary dream. And she's like, it just felt real. It felt different. And then the day after her dream and telling her brother the tsunami in thailand hit and he called her back and was like whoa so it's it's so interesting because there's a difference between certain premonitions too where some premonitions you may see something happening but you don't know when you don't know where you don't know who and then other times it's a premonition where it's like i right now need to get off of this plane specifically or else right and also because i'm the type of person where like i build up so much like anxiety in my head and i'm like i create the worst situations in my own head that i'm like is this real or is this a premonition like i i don't know if i'd ever be able to tell the difference i've had a few premonitions i know you have the one about your uncle right oh no that was my mom oh i've had a few and i'll i'll tell i'll tell them right now okay because there's only a few of them the first one i ever had was and i'm gonna leave names out because it's really upsetting but When I was a senior in high school, early on, like it was in the fall, I called my mom on this one stretch of road and I called her crying and I said, someone died or someone is going to die here. I just feel death. Like I'm so sad and I can't shake it. And I was like shaking in my car and I was just like, something horrible is going to happen. And she was like, no, it's not. It's fine. And then a few months later, I called my mom again and I'm freaking out a bit. And I'm like, I just feel like someone from high school is going to die. And at this point, I had already graduated high school early and had moved out to Los Angeles. So I wasn't around anyone back right. home. But I just had this really awful feeling. And I was like, something's going to happen. Oh and then gosh. a few hours after having that phone conversation with my mom, one of my friends reached out to me and someone who we went to school with and someone who I was friends with when I was much younger passed away on that strip of land on that road. Whoa. Right there. And then the other ones were not as sad and depressing. I had three other premonition type things. It was, again, in college, we were in Greek life. And one of the things you do in Greek life, or at least in our college, was you got to go away for weekends and do these like little vacation trips. Mm -hmm. And I was going away. I think we were going down to like Long Beach or San Diego or something. And I was going with a fraternity and they had rented buses to ship everyone down. And I got onto the bus and I started just like really having a bad feeling and freaking out. And I grabbed all of my stuff and I told three people, I said, get off this bus with me. I will drive us there. And the bus broke down on the way there. 
Okay, that's not as bad as like what I imagined you were thinking. No, no, no. It it just broke down. Thank God. Okay, thank God. And then I have two other ones. One was I was dating someone who I had also worked with Mm -hmm. out in Los Angeles. And he was not with us when we were all – a bunch of us were at lunch. Mm -hmm. And at lunch, I got a really, really, really bad – and I haven't really told many people this – because it was just so crazy and it was kind of creepy to tell people that they were like uh-huh. witnessing it happen. Uh. But I got this really awful feeling and I was like, I need to go back to the office. And we got lunch like every Friday. It wasn't a big deal. Right. But all of a sudden, I just started getting this like anxiety attack. And I was like, I have to go back to the office. Something is drawing me back to the office. I have to go back to the office. I don't know what's wrong. And my friend was next to me and was like, it's fine. Calm down. And I literally pulled out my phone and started calling myself an Uber because I hadn't driven myself oh my to gosh. lunch. And then he was like, Corinne, it's just we're getting the check. Wait five minutes. It's fine. And I was like, I just have to go back. And he was like, it's fine. Wait. And I was like, fine, fine, fine. I'll wait. And then when we got back to the office, the person that I had been dating was having an allergic reaction to peanuts and had to go to the hospital. Oh, my God. So when I had that feeling, it was probably the moment that he started reacting. Wow. And then the only other time was very benign. I started when I moved from Los Angeles to Boston. Uh-huh. I we hired a moving company and right as as my parents were like about to sign the paperwork when I was with them I s- just had like a huge panic and was like something's gonna happen to my stuff please 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 just let me drive cross-country with my stuff please don't let them take it I know something's gonna go wrong and it I didn't have any reason to think that it just suddenly all of a sudden I was like we can't do this but oh they were God. like no it's fine that's too much work and then all half my stuff was stolen what? Never made it to Boston. I didn't know that. My guitar, my camera. I never heard this story. All of my anything designer was taken. Speakers. That is crazy. Yeah. All of my boxes were opened up and rummaged through and they took what they wanted. Could you, I know that this isn't about premonitions, but can you file action against that company then? Um. Well, luckily I had insurance. So all state covered what I lost in the move. That's good. And then I filed a police report in Boston. That I don't is... know whatever happened to it. It wasn't much you could do. My dad called the company a bunch for me on behalf of me. It didn't wow. didn't amount to much. But yeah, so I guess I started like half from scratch. Okay, but you you had premonitions. You've had so many. Just just four. Just just four. And my mom has had a bunch. And hers are much more. <laughs> hers are much more similar to the first one that I had. Hers often revolve around death and horrible things happening. And I guess, so I, I've had other things happen that are kind of premonitions, but I, I I don't know. It's not as clear of a story to tell, but I often will get, not often, but maybe like once every year or two years, I'll suddenly get a feeling that doesn't belong to me. And I'll feel like really, really, really heartbroken or just like so incredibly sad. And it doesn't belong to me. And I have no reason to be reacting the way that I do. And then like within a few days, someone close to me will go through whatever that is. Like they'll get dumped or they'll lose someone. It's interesting because that's like a mix of like the empathy and like feeling people's feelings and premonition. Yeah, it's a little so empathic and then also a little premonition at the same time. Yeah. But I can't identify I can't say, oh my gosh, right. I feel so heartbroken and I know that uh, it's this I don't person. Know. Well, that's what I mean. That's why premonitions are so, like, they're such an interesting gift, but then 
what are you supposed to do with them? There's nothing like there's really it's really impossible to right unless it's very specific and you right. can pinpoint things like you on the bus. Yeah, you just kind of sit and you're like, mm-hmm. remember we were recording. Oh my god, this was ages ago. We recorded an episode. I think it was about past lives, reincarnation. It was like episode six. It was like very, very early on. I did research for an entire episode. We recorded it. And remember while recording, I like got like the worst. I was like so overwhelmed with emotion. And like I had like like after recording, I was like, I can't, like, I can't deal with this. And we ended up having to re-record that episode. And I did research on something completely different because I was like, I can't tell that story. I know. And then we were thinking that it must have been the spirits involved where you were catching their feelings. Yeah. I I've, I had never felt that way ever before in my life. Crazy. It is crazy. Okay. So I chose to talk about Sharon Tate, and you may be familiar with her. Oh, yes. Everyone is probably familiar with her. Uh, Yeah. Anyone who is into true crime would know about Sharon Tate. Yes. And also she was famous. She was. Outside and of. I'm going to talk about her life before I talk about the tragic death because okay. she should be remembered for both, mostly her life. But, you know, she was born on January 24th, 1943 in Dallas, Texas. And her father was an army officer. And so they moved around a lot in her youth. They moved to like different countries. They moved all over the U.S. And then in high school, they moved to Italy. And when she was in Italy, she was with a bunch of her friends. And they saw this like casting call for extras for a movie called Hemingway's Adventures of a Young Man. And so her and a couple of friends were like, let's go. And so they were extras in the film. And one of the main actors, Richard Bamer, was like, ooh, who's that girl? went up to her and they began dating and he was like you need to pursue a career in film like you are and she is she's like the most gorgeous beautiful person and she had like a very like outgoing personality like she just like you know those people who just like beam lightness and positive energy and you like want to look at them like yeah you're so attracted to them yeah that's who she was and so Bamer is like let's get you started like do this career as a career you're really good And so in 1960, she appeared on the Pat Boone Chevy showroom, which was filmed in Venice, Italy. And then all these people were telling her to move back to the U.S. in order to pursue this like dream of being an actress properly. And so she told her family she was going to go back to the States to study, to finish her studies. But actually, she was just going to be an actress. (laughs) And so she moves back to the States. And immediately, her mother starts having like horrible feelings. And she's just like... It got so bad to the point where she had like a full-on, full-blown panic attack, like like meltdown, and like had to like be hospitalized from a nervous breakdown. She was like, please come back. So Sharon went back to Italy because her mom was just like too overwhelmed and nervous that something bad was going to happen to her daughter, which is very interesting because that doesn't just happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then they're back in Italy. They're living there for a little while. And then the entire family moved back to the States in 1962. And it was then that Sharon fully embraced the acting career and was like given the approval from her parents as well. And so she was in a bunch of walk-on roles. And then in 1965, she was given her first major role in a film called The Eye of the Devil, in which she played a witch and then was considered, everyone like saw that movie and was like, wow, she's such a great discovery. Like this is going to be, she's going to have an amazing career ahead of her. And around this time, she met Roman Polanski, 
and they got in a relationship. Apparently, they hated each other at first. Like, Roman Polanski, like, thought she was, like, too cool. And she thought he was just, like, a rude kind of dude. So they, like, literally had no sparks when they first met. Wow. Yeah. And then shortly after that, obviously, they did. And they met while filming The Fearless Vampire Killers. There's a real theme going on with all these movies. I know. Uh, and then they married in London of January 20th, 1968. And then in June of that year, Roman Polanski's directorial debut, Rosemary's Baby, was released. I'm not sure if you've seen that movie, but it's all about like satanic cults and... It's- no, I haven't. Isn't it? It's a book too, right? Yes. I've just heard about how dark it is and I haven't, I haven't gotten around to it. I haven't been in the right mindset for it. It's, you know what? It's a really good movie to watch because it's not going to like horrify. It's totally scary, but it's not going to horrify you. It's more like psychological with like the witchy aspect of it. Okay. Okay. All right. You made me feel better. I'll watch it tonight. Although it's believed to be cursed. So. Great. But it won't affect you. (laughs) It like curses the people who are involved. Oh, okay. So I'm still safe. Including Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate. There's like all like after everything happened with Sharon, they were like, Rosemary's baby is 100% cursed because there were so many parallels. Like Rosemary was pregnant in the movie and then the satanic cult like tells her that her baby died. Gosh. And like all, it's just like all these weird connections that people, you know, they make. Mm Mm-hmm. Anyway, so Sharon's on her way to becoming a notorious Hollywood actress, but unfortunately, her life was ended very short in a very tragic manner because on August 8th, Charles Manson sent his family to 150 Cielo Drive, Los Angeles, California, which is the home of Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski, and this was 1968. And I'm just going to preface this. I have to say what happened, but I'm trying to like, I don't want to give every single detail. It's like so horrible, but I also feel like it's this mix of emotions where like you want to tell the story correctly, but I also like don't want to like pay, give like yeah. the attention to like the horror gruesome that Charles Manson and his family did. Right. But so I'm just going to give you like a brief overview. So Sharon Tate was eight and a half months pregnant at the time and Roman Polanski was away for business in Europe. And like, apparently he was supposed to come home the week prior and then he just like, ex- extended his trip and Sharon's like, eight and a half months pregnant and her husband's not there. So she was just like, I need someone to be here. So she invited uh, a bunch of her friends to come stay with her. Jay Sebring, Wojciech Frykowski, Abigail Folger, and Sharon. And they went to dinner at El Coyote Cafe and then returned to Sharon's home for the evening. And they all settled in. They like spent the night together, you know, chatting. And then they settled in for bed. As they were doing that, uh, Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Linda Caspian and Patricia Kenwinkle all made their way onto the property and they cut the telephone line and climbed over a brush embankment and onto the property. It was around midnight at this time. And as they were approaching the front door, a pair of headlights started coming up the driveway behind them. And it was 18 year old Stephen Parent who was visiting the property's caretaker, William Gerritsen, who lived in the property in the guest house. And Tex Watson ordered the women to hide in the bushes as he approached the oncoming vehicle. And Stephen was, like, horrified, obviously, because Tex approaches him with a gun. Stephen's like, please, like, I'll leave. I'll never – I won't tell anyone. But Watson stabbed him with a knife and shot him four times, killing him. And then – It's not fun to hear about knowing that – yeah. I know. It's it's so tragic. 
exciting and awful. It's tough to talk about, but yeah, yeah. And then Tex Watson cuts a window screen and climbed into the home, opens the front door, allowing Atkins and Krenwinkel in. And they had uh, Linda Caspian stay and stand guard at the front of the gate to make sure no one else would come. And as they came into the house, Wojciech woke up because he was sleeping on the couch. He woke up and he went to go investigate. He saw the three people standing in the foyer and he was like, what are you guys doing? Who are you? And Tex Watson replied, I am the devil and I'm here to do the devil's business. And then Watson kicked him in the head and and then forced him into the living room along with Jay Sebring, Abigail Folger, and Sharon Tate. They put them all in the living room. Tate and Sebring were tied together by their necks. When Sebring protested, they were like, he was like, Tate is pregnant like Sharon's pregnant. Please let her be like, don't hurt her. And then Watson shot Sebring because of how much he was trying to protect Sharon. Oh my gosh. So then Tex Watson then stabbed Sebring seven times. And then Wojciech starts yelling and screaming. He's trying to fight off the the other women around him. And Susan Atkins, who he was trying to fight off, starts stabbing him in the legs. And so... Wojciech is trying to crawl away, but he only made it to the porch when Tex Watson caught up to him, kicked him, hit him with the gun so hard that the gun broke in, like the back of the gun broke because of the force. Wow. And then he stabbed him and shot him. But Wojciech still was still alive. And so he's like trying to get out. He's like barely alive, hanging on. And then the fourth Manson family member, Linda, who had been at the front by the driveway, was like, hearing all this violence and was like, this is horrible. I need to put an end to it and runs up to the house and says that there's, that someone's on their way up and we we need to go, we need to go. But the others didn't listen to her. And then they continued their horrible massacre of these people. Folger tried to make an attempt to flee. And then when Watson caught up with her, he stabbed her 28 times and saw Wolchek near her, like still, he's the one who was shot and stabbed and hit with the back of the gun. And Mm -hmm. he's like crawling across the lawn and like, you know, trying to make it somewhere to safety. And then Watson stabbed him 51 times. And so at this point, Sharon's the only one still alive. She offered herself as a hostage. She was like, please, like, I just... I just want my baby to live. Like, just take me as a hostage. Let my baby live and then you can kill me. But they had no mercy and they stabbed her 16 times. And Watson, it's just horrible because the like horrible monsters get to live and they get to tell the story from their perspective, you know? And so later, Tex Watson wrote that in her final moments, Sharon Tate was crying for her mother. And then when they left, they covered the walls in witchy messages written in Tate's blood saying like pig and like they were just trying to throw it off to make it look like it was a satanic cult thing, which is another connection people made to the Rosemary's Baby movie. Mm -hmm. And isn't it interesting, too, that even as an adult, so many times when something horrible is happening to someone instead of, you know, maybe thinking of their spouse or whoever they I feel Mm -hmm. like oftentimes we hear that people call out for their mom or a parent. Yeah. Yeah. It's so sad. It's It's like you need the protection and you're so out of control of the situation. Yeah. Oh, it's so, so sad. And also just like, I couldn't even imagine like being a mother and losing your daughter that way. I would go mad. I would sit silently for 10 years and then I would murder the person. Right. Well, then, I mean, it's just interesting also 
because Sharon's mom had like this horrible feeling when Sharon went back to Los Angeles. Oh, God. So it was so horrible. She had a nervous breakdown. At least it was they were caught, you know? Right. There are so many unsolved murders and disappearances and so many family members have to go the rest of their lives or years and years without knowing what happened right. or who did what to their right. sibling. It doesn't make it any better, but – Right. But yes, so I'm not sure. I, I imagine most people who listening to this are familiar with Charles Manson. Mm-hmm. He was the perpetrator of all of this. He can he orchestrated all of it and had his family go kill them. And it was all because a previous tenant of the home on Cielo Drive was a music producer named Terry Melcher. And Charles Manson at a point wanted to be a musician, or he always wanted to be a musician. And one of the Beach Boys like one of the band members of Beach Boys introduced Charles Manson to Terry Melcher and Terry liked Charles, but like didn't sign him. And so all of this was revenge and Terry didn't even live there anymore. And they knew he didn't live there anymore because he had his family stake out the house multiple times before they went and did this horrible act. And they knew that Sharon Tate and Rowan Polanski lived there, that Terry Melcher had moved out years prior and yet they still did this. That's just seriously messed up. Did you read the book The Girls by Emma Klein? Yes. Oh my god. I know. Everyone needs to read that book. Yeah. It's really it's hard to read. Very much inspired by the Manson case, but it's just so good. Yeah. It is really good. Lay likes it too. Yes. And she hates this murder. This episode isn't about that murder, it kind of is. But according to sources, Sharon Tate actually had a very vivid premonition that was like affecting her day-to-day life and she was like telling everyone about it and after the fact people were like i think the premonition was about her murder and there's this this magazine called fate magazine and it is a little bit more of like a parapsychology magazine but this celebrity columnist dick kleiner had interviewed sharon only like a year prior to the to her actual death and he had asked her if she had ever had a psychic experience, to which she responded, yes, I have had a psychic experience. At least I guess that's what it was, and it was terribly frightening and disturbing thing for me. It happened a year or so ago, and maybe you can explain it. She said that in the summer of 1967, she had gone to her friend Jay Sebring's house, who, if you remember, is also one of the victims of the Manson family murder. He actually was one of her lovers in the past. And like, he was a hairstylist who had made him a name for himself in Hollywood. And he and Sharon had dated a long time ago. And he actually even proposed to her at a point. And she, she turned him down because she was like, I always said that when I said yes to someone, my career would end. And so she was like, I just, I don't, I'm not ready to get married. And they, but they stayed like best friends. They loved each other. This kind of reminds me of God, what's his name from queen. Freddie Mercury and yeah. his wife. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they stayed really good friends and like Jay just was supportive. And apparently at this point, Sharon had been dating another guy who had just given her like, I think they had just broken up and she was just like, I can't deal with it. I'm having a really horrible time. And so Jay was like, come stay at my place. Like, no worries. And so she did. And then Jay owned a house in Benedict Canyon. And so Sharon went to stay over. And Jay gave her a room upstairs and told her to sleep it off. And so she went upstairs. She tries to sleep it off. She's laying in bed and she sees a man enter the room. 
And it took her a minute to wrap her head around who this was or what the heck this was because Jay was the only one in the house. Who the heck is this man? Why is he walking into her room? And wait a second. I know that man. It makes no sense because that man is supposed to be dead. It was Paul Byrne, who was a writer and director who had previously owned Jay's home, but had died in September of 1932. So like 30 years prior to this. Wow. And Paul had apparently died by suicide inside that home. And she was now seeing his spirit. And she stared at him. She was like, I know I recognize him from photos, but like, how is he here? That makes no sense. And so she quickly got out of bed and like ran from the room because she was terrified and she went downstairs. But as she reached the stairs, the horrific images and nightmares got worse because she got to the stairs and she saw a vision of someone tied to the staircase and all of a sudden their throat starts bleeding out. (gasps) And she was so overwhelmed. She like runs even further downstairs. She was like, I must be seeing things. I'm losing my mind. This can't be real. And she needed to get a drink. And she like was like wandering the house looking for a drink. And then all of a sudden, like something told her to go look into this one room and open a bookcase. And that she was like, there's going to be liquor behind there. And sure enough, she had never like gone to this part of the house before. And sure enough, she opens this secret bookcase and there's alcohol behind it. She makes a drink for herself. And then she like, as drinking, like nervously pulls off some of the wallpaper by the bar. She's like, okay, I'm fine. She takes deep breaths and she's like, I'm going to go back to bed. I'm going to try and sleep. And so she continues to go back upstairs. But when she reaches the stairs again, that vision is still there. She can't tell if it's a man or a woman. She can't tell any distinguishing features. It's just a vision of someone tied by their neck to the staircase, bleeding out of their throat and other wounds on their body. And she's just like freaked out, but she goes upstairs and the ghost of Paul Byrne is still there. And she's like, what the hell is happening? But she ends up falling asleep. Don't know how, but she ends up falling asleep and she wakes up in the morning. She goes, it was all a dream. It was all a dream. And she like wakes up. Paul's not there. The ghost is not there. The vision of the person on the stairs is not there. And she's like, okay, I'm fine. I I had a bad dream. But when she goes downstairs Jay is there and he was like, did you have a drink at my bar and tear my wallpaper off? And it confirmed for her that it was not in fact a dream. It was a real thing that she had experienced and it haunted her. She was like, well, that's probably why like they, the ghost was telling her like, go drink here and rip this wallpaper because I want you to know that this is real, that this wasn't a dream. He was trying to, you know. Verify. Leave a little bread trail for her in the morning. Yes. Yes. And there's so many questions because like, was Paul Byrne, because he's a ghost, is he able to know things from the other side and he was like trying to deliver her a message? Or is it like, were they connected? Were they not connected? I don't know. Anyway, the this vision, this image that was in her mind was so haunting that she just like she felt like she was going crazy and she was like, I don't know why, but I feel like that was a vision of myself. And she like had this really intense feeling that like the one, the person bleeding out was her. (sighs) And she told a few people, but like not very many because she was like, I think I'm losing my mind. And also she was pregnant. And so she's like, or at this point she wasn't pregnant, but like later in life, she would like have more premonitions about it. Like the same thing. It would always be the same image in her mind. 
But like when she told people, they were like, you're pregnant. It's fine. Like, you know, you're fine. Nothing's going to happen. You know, I actually, I don't know if I just blocked it from my memory Mm -hmm. or if I never heard the detail that Sharon Tate was pregnant at the time of her death. She was. Eight and a half I did not know that. It's horrible. She lost her baby. Yeah. No, it was very, very sad. Whether the premonition was real or not, her she did end up dying by stab wounds and and there's a lot of debate like I was doing a lot of research and people were kind of offended by the fact that people were like she had a premonition like and I think it I think it's because the idea of people saying like something is predetermined it makes people really mad yeah that they're not in control of their own fate yeah and the idea that you can't change things yeah yeah which I'll let people decide for themselves I mean if she if she was able to pinpoint that that actually was her in a time and a place mm-hmm. and all of those details that we're saying oftentimes premonitions miss, then maybe it would have turned out differently. Right. Or maybe it would have been like the movie Final Destination and you cannot cheat fate. I hate that movie. I think that's worse than any other horror movie I've ever seen. Because it's it like scratches at you and gets under mm-hmm. your skin. And it stays with you forever yes it echoes into every day of my life i can't like live my life normally anymore (laughs) but okay so then so then sharon was murdered by the manson family and everyone is like quick to say rosemary's baby is a cursed movie and like they're connecting all these parallels and there are so many other people who have died who are part of the movie and it's i mean and the movie is about like a curse put on to someone basically And anyway, so I know this isn't about Rosemary's Baby, but I'm going to tell you a few of the curses that did or like the things that happened that culminated to make it believe that it was cursed. So John Lennon was actually murdered outside of the same hotel the movie was filmed in. And the film's composer died within months of completing his work. The film's producer had kidney failure shortly after the release of the film. And while he was in the hospital, he would have nightmares about the movie. And it was, like, specifically Rosemary with a knife coming at him. And, like, all these different freakishly nightmarish scenes. And he left the hospital. When he, like, finally left the hospital, he was like, I will never, ever talk about or think about or see that movie ever again he's like that movie is haunted like he thought it was like messed up and there are a bunch of other stuff obviously but like those are like the big ones and then Sharon Tate's death and I feel like it's so easy to draw connections to things and like you it's it's normal for humans to want to make sense of things and so you draw connections to things that might not necessarily be true Mm -hmm. but I feel like I don't know I, I feel like the vision she had, whether it's a premonition or not, it was like a message from the other side of some kind, right? Like it was, yeah, some sort of intervention. Right. I'm not saying that everything's predetermined and that everything like is meant to be because that's a horrible thing to say. But like, I do think there is some aspect of like we talk about it all the time, like glitch in the matrix or parallel universes and like how there are overlaps in time and the past, present, and future all exist at once and all of these different Even things. just the stories that we've had where people have been yelled like, stop, or something out of nowhere, and they stop, and then a car whizzes by. Right. Like, it doesn't have to be something so far in the future for it to be intervention from the paranormal world. Correct. Correct. And so the last thing I will say, there is a movie, because apparently, so it's the 50th anniversary, I think, coming up this summer of the murders and Sharon's death. And so there are all these movies coming out about it. 
including one I just watched called The Haunting of Sharon Tate, which stars Hilary Duff. It came out in April and... No way. Oh my gosh, I have to watch No, this. you don't. Why? Because it's... You didn't like it? People are very offended by it because it's it's basically like comparing... It's just saying that Sharon's had all these premonitions. It's about the premonitions specifically. And it's like comparing the premonitions to the actual murder and like just saying that like she knew it was going to happen in a way that like she could have prevented it, which I don't think is true whatsoever. I think she just had this. Oh, that she, it's her fault that she didn't save herself from these cryptic. Yeah, I don't think it's like necessarily, I don't think it's necessarily that, but it was just like, I don't think it had a point aside from like jump scares and then like showing the gruesome murders, if that makes sense. Oh. And 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 shoot because yeah. I do love Hillary Duff. Yeah, I do too. But um, I think you can skip this one, okay. and it's received a lot of backlash. Like even Sharon Tate's sister was like, "This is not true. Like, how dare you say that my like my sister could have or knew knowledge of her death and like could have avoided it? Like, it was a freak accident." But I mean, you know, it, it it's horrible. All, all of this is horrible. And whether she had a premonition or not, like her death is horrible. And in conclusion, fuck Manson. Yes, agreed. And that's the story of Sharon Tate and her premonitions. Oh my goodness. That's way more in depth than I thought because I'd heard before that she had like a dream where she thought that she or that someone was getting murdered, but I had no idea all of the specifics of it and how many things connected together. Right. Oh, my connection with Rosemary's baby. Ooh. I know. Well, who knows? There's just so much activity going on within one sort of. You know, everything's connected. Right, right. It's like, what is it, this uh, seven degrees of Kevin Bacon? It's kind of like, did you play that Wikipedia game in high school? Where no. <laughs> someone would say something random. It would be like, you'd have to open up the Wikipedia page, just like the main browsing page. And then I'd say, Beelzebub. And then everyone who was playing that was at a computer at the same time. Don't say that name. Sorry. <laughs> Beetlejuice. Thank you. <laughs> I'll change it. A different B, B word. Beetlejuice. And then everyone who's playing has to – you're not allowed to type anything in. You have to click on words and try to see who gets to the page titled Beetlejuice the quickest. Oh. So you have to try to make the connections and dots of what's related to what and what could be mentioned and what. That is – okay, that sounds both simultaneously so fun and also like, why? Why? Because it's high school. <laughs> I mean, why not? It was like a fun little – thing to do and drink free blocks i like how innocent you were in in high school that's what you did <laughs> me and my friend let's friends, play the wikipedia game me and my friend did what's that website where you like face chat with like random strangers all over the world chat roulette chat roulette that's what me and my friends did in in free period at high school in the school oh yeah we did weird shit in our it, school okay number one you must have gone to a bougie school if you guys had webcams on your computers i had i my senior year i got my own laptop macbook oh, so you did it you did it on uh high school wi-fi but on your own personal on our property. own personal property wow oh my god how daring i know that's like basically watching porn in high school because there were so many it, nude people it was it was straight up <laughs> but like we were high school girls and we were like we, we were like talking about that type of stuff anyway so it was like Let's just sit in a circle and giggle and talk to weird strangers. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. What did you choose? I chose something. I, I was interested in looking into large disasters that happened, whether it be a natural disaster or a horrible 
accident that happened that killed a bunch of people because similar to what we mentioned in 9-11 or like with Mm -hmm. tsunamis, there are always so many people who come out after or who have proof from before that they had some sort of premonition or bad feeling. I just realized this is a really dark episode. It's a really dark episode because oftentimes premonitions are not like, ooh, I see myself marrying a brunette person with green eyes in two days and then suddenly you meet someone and fly to Vegas and marry them. That's usually not the premonition. I know. I know. Right? Unfortunately. Unfortunately. But I do like that that's your type. Is that who you're looking for? Green eyes. A person with green eyes? Yeah. And you, <laughs> you want to get married in it, Vegas? Is that no. That's a new thing I'm learning about you. I actually really don't like Vegas. You know that about me. I don't. Who does? Who likes I'm a Vegas, going to I'm Vegas? Vegas's biggest hater because I don't do drugs and I'm not good at staying up late and I don't like people touching me and being so close to me. And I don't like inhaling cigarette smoke. I don't have the attention span for gambling nor the money. So Did I ever tell you that? The first time we went to Vegas, we were staying at the Venetian. And you know how, like, they have that whole underground, like, the canals and, like, the ceilings are painted and everything? Oh, yes. We never left the Venetian. And I was like, oh, Vegas is, like, really weird. Like, I like I thought that was Vegas. Like, I literally thought that whole place was Vegas. <laughs> well, okay, because it takes you 30 minutes to walk through one hotel. Yeah. Which is actually – I love the hotels in Vegas. They're amazing. And the Venetian. I There's this one really delicious – restaurant i can't remember the name of it that's like sits up and walk like overlooks the canal and you see the gondolas going by and all the people singing there are so many ways to do vegas right mm-hmm. i've just never done it right oh my gosh this is so i don't even know how i want to keep this in the episode but the speaking of vomiting in places there you know we, we've gone to vegas quite a few times where you drink and there was one time we were going to like a pool party i think it was for jess's birthday and i was like finishing a bottle of like a water bottle I had like a little bit of vodka in and we're walking through a lobby and I literally like vomit in my mouth and like hold it in my mouth and I have to like run to a trash can and there's like a mom with her baby in a stroller next to the trash can and I just straight up puked in the trash can next to them it's so nasty so I too hate Vegas I because it's Vegas baby you know I I would like Vegas if I went to just have a weekend where I did like shows yes. and all the best places to eat. And I laid out by the pool during the day that wasn't a pool party where people were peeing in the pool all day. Like that would oh be. Oh my God. That water is not warm because of how warm Vegas is. It's warm because people are constantly peeing in it. Ugh, so gross. You can't go in. I want to go to see Lady Gaga. She has like two, she has two shows. I want to go to the jazz one. Uh, did you saw? Okay. This is actually a great intro into what I chose. Oh, good. Because. Celine Dion, did you see her on Carpool Karaoke? Yes. I can't believe she has like warehouse of shoes. Yeah, that's ridiculous. But she's also hilarious. Yes. And when they – I don't want to ruin it for anyone, but I'm going to right now. Mm -hmm. But at the very end, she and James Corden go out in front of the Bellagio where all of the um, like fountains are, the Mm -hmm. famous Bellagio fountains. And they are on a boat and she sings uh, the song she sings from Titanic. Mm Mm-hmm. With James Corden. Mm-hmm. And what I chose to cover for premonitions is the Titanic. What? Do, do, do. Wow. We connected va- our rant about Vegas to the Titanic. I, We're getting good at this. That was really, really brilliant. Genius, I may say. <laughs> I was wondering where you were going. It's because I played the Wikipedia game. <laughs> See, it did do some good for you. It's helped it's you in the long circle. run. Okay. So everybody <laughs> knows about the Titanic. 
1912, the RMS Titanic was the largest ship at the time, and it was set out from Southampton, England, to New York City. The ship was designed by an Irish shipbuilder named William Perry. I hope I said that right. And it was built in Belfast, so over in Ireland. And not only was it the largest ship to be on the water at the time, but also it was the fastest in the world. And the length of the ship was 883 feet, and the hull was divided into 16 compartments. Four compartments could be filled with water before it would affect the buoyancy of the ship. So that was kind of like trying to be the foolproof method, like out of the 16 compartments, if the ship hit something or was crashed into, four of those compartments could be filled with water Mm -hmm. before the ship would start to be affected. So the Titanic was then dubbed as, or was said to be, unsinkable. I just, I think you're setting yourself up for bad things to name yourself unsinkable. So if we say we're the most haunted podcast in America, does that, is that, are we doing reverse psychology and now we're going to be the least haunted? No, but I also think that's inviting. Like, you know. (gasps) Well, on April 10th of 1912, the Titanic set out with 2,200 passengers and crew. And as it was pulling out of the harbor, it almost hit a steamboat, but it missed it by just People said it was like a couple inches. So everyone on board was like, oh, my God, like freaking out up at the top, watching this massive Titanic ship almost hit a steamboat. Wow. So on its journey, the ship hit an iceberg. As we all know, it's the famous story. It's a real life story. And then, of course, there was the Kate Winslet, Leonardo DiCaprio movie that Mm -hmm. was quite beautiful and makes me cry every time. Same. And... A few hours after hitting the iceberg, it later sank on April 15th of 1912, and it killed over 1,500 people on board. Let me remind you that there were 2,200 passengers and crew, so that's over half of the people passed away because of this crash. And this crash was one of the deadliest commercial marine disaster in history. Wow. And it was the best movie was ever made. Because of this crash, which is the Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet movie. I think it's like one of the highest grossing films. Is it? Oh my God, it's so good. This would be a perfect time to bring Nick on the podcast because he loves the Titanic. He and Marissa would be able to talk for hours. It's Marissa's favorite movie. Should we phone a friend? (laughs) (laughs) That's going to be our new segment. (laughs) Okay. So the sinking of the Titanic was a horrible disaster and one that you couldn't predict. Or could you? Because apparently there were many predictions that preceded the sinking of the ship, and there were even two books that predicted the sinking. What? So in these books, ships sink, and the said ships and events are strikingly similar to what happened to the Titanic some decades after the books were released. One of which was outlined by the author Morgan Robertson's novella called Futility, which was published back in 1898. So it was like 14 years before (laughs) the Titanic sank. And in this book, there was a boat named the Titan. So if you add an A and a C, wait, if you add an I and a C at the end of that, you get Titanic. Wait, that's weird. Right? And in the book, the Titan was the largest ship afloat at the time, which was the first similarity between the Titan and the Titanic, beyond the name. Mm -hmm. And Robertson goes on to give more details like the size and length of the ship, which are very similar, with the Titanic measuring 269 meters and the Titan measuring 240 meters. Whoa. I just got confused about that because earlier I did it in feet and then for some reason I switched to meters. (laughs) 
Very European of you. I'm just trying to please everyone. Yeah, we, we're a global podcast. Global. Both ships had a triple screw propeller, and the Titan was considered, in the book, to be unsinkable. Ah. And therefore, because it was unsinkable, there was a shortage of lifeboats on board. And in the book, this boat was journeying through cold waters 400 nautical miles away from Newfoundland, which is the exact spot where the Titanic sank. And the Titanic also had a shortage of lifeboats on board. And in this book, the boat hits an iceberg on its starboard side, which is just what happened to the Titanic. I, this is crazy. The speed at which the Titan and the Titanic hit the iceberg are eerily similar as well. And in the book, the Titan sank on an April night, just like the Titanic. I am blown away. What is Mm -hmm. this book called? It's called Futility. It came out in 1898. Oh, my God. And then in the Titan, everyone on board except for 13 people died. But luckily, that's the difference between the Titan and the Titanic. 705 Mm. people made it out alive on the Titanic, including Kate Winslet. (laughs) A ton of (laughs) – do you think some people will think that that's real (laughs) and repeat that? Yes. Okay. So a ton of people have pointed out similarities between these events. But Robertson, the author of this novella, says that he is not clairvoyant. He did not predict the events. He insists that he was just quite knowledgeable about maritime operations and that – he knows what he's talking about, and that's or why. is it like last week when we were talking about the, like, methods, methods of communication? Like, automatic writing, and he was writing, and all of a sudden, like, it wasn't really him writing it. It was, like, spirits coming through him to write the story. Sabrina, that's literally what I wrote next. I said, perhaps <laughs> there was some higher power, some intervention from the spirit world that guided him through his writings of this book. <laughs> Yeah, I totally believe it, that something might have planted this idea, tried to provide this inspiration to him in hopes that, you know, this book would be printed 14 years earlier than the Titanic, and that people would read it, and then people would understand, oh my gosh, wait, all of these flaws that are in this Titanic remind me of all of the flaws that led to the demise of the Titan. So let's fix it, prevent this accident, and save lives. Ugh, that's wild. Nope, did not work. And then there was another book about the Titanic, one that came out actually a whole decade before Robertson's book. And in 1886, author W.T. Stead was an investigative journalist and a prominent spiritualist. Stead, who had a fear of drowning, wrote about a large ocean liner that sinks in the Atlantic, and the piece was called How the Mail Steamer Went Down in the Mid-Atlantic by a Survivor. And his main character was named Thomas. So this was a fictional piece. Mm -hmm. And Thomas was a sailor on the boat and was quite concerned that the ship wasn't properly equipped with enough lifeboats. Oh, my God. But the boat continues on its journey and it's making its way through the fog when suddenly it collides with a small sailing ship and the boat begins to sink. And as it does, all of the women and all of the children are escorted onto the lifeboats first. But things get chaotic when people are scrambling and climbing over each other trying to save themselves. And only 200 of the 700 people were able to survive the incident, including Thomas, the protagonist of this novel. Wow. And Thomas was in the water, but he was saved when a lifeboat circles back and grabs him. The story ends with Stead writing, quote, This is exactly what might take place and what will take place if the liners are sent to sea short of boats. Ooh, I just got chills. And on April 10th, 1912, that author, W.T. Stead, 
boarded the Titanic. No. And five days later, he passed away due to the crash. Because there were not enough lifeboats for everyone on board. Isn't this wild? I am speechless. Yes. Whoa. The number of people who felt off before boarding the Titanic or all the little events that happened right before the ship took off and took sail um, could have also been a key indicator that something was about to happen. Something bad was going to happen. All these sort of like premonition type things. And besides the Titanic almost crashing into a steamer within its first few minutes of its departure, (laughs) there were also a few other small things that happened before. A bunch of people reported seeing a cat take her litter out of the ship right before it took off. So everyone's like, trust your pets, trust your animals. They know something's off. And additionally, there were some people who had a bad feeling and refused to board the Titanic altogether. Some people had dreams, kind of like you, Sabrina. Mm -hmm. Some people had these like waking premonitions of evil or of death or of sadness that would come. And some people had visions of people drowning. And some even shared their premonitions via via letters and telegrams with their friends and family. And for some, these premonitions did save their lives. And for others, it was a gut feeling that they would later regret not listening to. Right. And according to the notable Titanic historian John P. Eaton, there were at least 50 passengers or crew members who canceled or refused to board the ship last minute. So 50 people. I mean, maybe things popped up for some of them, but 50 people, there might be plenty that were just like, nope, something's right. off. Right. And one such person was named Anne Ward. She was supposed to be on the Titanic along with the Cardeza family who bought the most expensive suite on the ship. And Anne was their maid, and she was going to travel with them. But before they were set to board, she had this premonition that something really bad was going to happen on oh the ship. Gosh. And she contacted her mom, and she told her mom that she didn't want to go, and that she couldn't get on the boat. And then when it was time for her to actually board the Titanic with her employers, she refused to go. And that saved her life. Whoa. Major Archibald Willingham Butt also had a premonition. He bought a first-class passenger ticket on the Titanic, but before going, he had this premonition that he wouldn't return home from the trip. But instead of skipping the trip, he prepared his will with his lawyer and wrapped everything up that needed to be completed before his death. Yeah, so he, like, it was almost like a final destination thing. Like, he was like, oh, can't cheat fate. Like, I know I'm I'm not going to make it, but I'm still going. That's nutso. Right. So he and his lawyer finished this well before he left, and then he wrote a letter to his sister stating, quote, if that old ship sinks, my affairs are in order. And then Major Archibald Willingham Butt boarded the ship and later died in the Titanic disaster. Whoa. There are so many more. So for Chief Officer Henry Tingle Wild, the bad feelings came on just a little bit too late. He was the second in command on the boat, which he was actually really disappointed about because he had been assigned to this boat and he had been hoping at the time for a different assignment with a higher ranking role. But he was given the Titanic instead and he was the second in command. And he wrote a letter to his sister from the ship that said, I still don't like this ship. I just have a queer feeling about it. And then Chief Officer Wilde did not survive the disaster. Wow. Eva Hart boarded the ship and survived the accident. She was only seven years old at the time. And she later reported seven. She was seven years old. And later on, she reported after, you know, being saved from a Titanic crash that every night her mother, Esther Hart, would sit up 
in the reading chair, fully dressed instead of going to sleep because she thought that there would be an accident and she wanted to be fully ready for when something would happen. So she was completely dressed, completely prepared, sitting up, being awake so that she could try to save her family if something happened. And she was right. Something did happen. But she, her daughter was saved. Wow. All right. And guess who else had tickets to board but refused to get on? Who? The Vanderbilts. What? George and Edith Vanderbilt, they had purchased first-class passengers tickets, and they had already loaded all of their stuff onto the ship. Everything was up there. They were, like, ready to get on the boat and come to America, come back to America. But something happened, and at the very last second, both of them just refused to get on. They're like, we don't want to get on. We're not going to go on the ship. Nope, nope, nope. But all of our stuff is on. So you, our servant, Edwin Wheeler, you must board the boat and accompany our luggage to New York, and we'll meet you there. And their servant did not survive the crash. Whoa. Okay. And this one isn't really a premonition so much, but right after the Titanic narrowly missed that steamer when it was first pulling off, apparently it was by less than 72 inches, some people say, which is like insane. Yeah. A man turned to a woman named Renee Harris and asked her, do you love life? And she said, yes. And he said in a very serious and affirmative tone, then you will get off the ship at Cherbourg if we get that far. Oh, my god! That's what I'm going to do. And it's believed that the man did get off, but Harris and her husband did not. And her husband died in the disaster, but she survived and then later had told about this, like, strange encounter that she had within the first few minutes of the boat taking off. Okay, so to end the story, I'm going to tell you about Lawrence Beastly. He published a book just a few months after the crash, and he described an out-of-body experience that he had. Lawrence said, quote, The curious sense of the whole thing being a dream was very prominent. The all were looking on at the scene from a nearby vantage point, in a position of perfect safety, and that those who walked the decks or tied one another's lifeboats on were actors in the scene of which we were but spectators, that the dream would end soon and that we would wake up to find the scene had vanished. Many people had had similar experiences in the time of danger, but it was very noticeable on the Titanic's deck. I remember observing it particularly while trying on a life belt for a man on the deck. It is fortunate that it should be so. To be able to survey such a scene dispassionately is a wonderful aid in the destruction of fears that go with it. So it's just pretty wild how many people yeah. avoided getting on the ship and how many people had awful feelings either before or after this event. Right. And it just blows my mind the two books that kind of predicted I mean, the one book, Futility, was like oh, de detail for detail. Yeah, that one's the Titanic sinking. Insane. And then the other one stating like, hey, you got to have lifeboats or else everyone's going to die. And then the author is on the Titanic. Right. Ugh. Ooh! It's so wild, wild because it's like, I mean, I've said this a million times this episode, but I just like, I don't know if I had something like that, if I'd be able to put it together and be like, oh, I need to get off. Like, I don't know if I'd be able to distinguish He's from my own fears, like, just, like, built up inside of me from yeah. an actual, like, message and premonition. Well, I've had enough instances now where some I have a really bad feeling. I have, like, a premonition or just a really awful gut feeling and I'm like, I shouldn't do this. And then I do it anyway and something horrible happens. 
all of my stuff getting stolen. That was like right. the last time. I said, this is the last time <laughs> I'm not listening to my gut when I have this intense of a right. feeling. Right. So it could be that you're just, you know, listening to your gut a lot and then maybe you don't make the connections because something didn't happen. If I was listening to my gut, I would never get in a car. Sabrina, that really scares me that you say that all the time. All right, I'll stop saying it. What if you get in a car accident? I, this is why I'm scared. Statistically, I will. it's likely. <laughs> Sorry. I know. But like, you need to move closer to where you work so you don't have to drive as much. It might happen soon. Good. Yeah. Although I love where you live, but. Me too, but sanity over. Place. Sanity and some safety, maybe. Yeah. Man, oh man. Wow. I feel like I just. I could talk about this topic for ages because it's so, it's so bewildering to me. And I feel like it connects to so many aspects of the paranormal supernatural world Mm -hmm. that you could draw connections to like half the stories we've talked about. I know. Everything's connected. It all comes full circle. Okay. This is from Matt. It's called Family Premonitions. He says, hey, ghostesses, so I've never been too sensitive, but I've always been somewhat of a natural detective and have a deep fascination with the paranormal and spiritualism. I always ask people I know if they've ever had any experiences in an attempt to make up for me never really having any, lol. Anyway, I was visiting with my grandma, and she's pretty religious, but she's open with me, and so I asked her one time if she ever had any paranormal experiences, and she said, sort of. So I asked her to explain, and she said she never really saw any ghosts or anything, but that she thinks she has some sort of ability that she thinks passed down her maternal line, and the stories she told me are as follows. My great-great-grandmother, Louise, was on Lake Erie for a family vacation. She was taking a daytime nap in the cabin when she had a dream. She dreamt that her daughter, who was no older than maybe eight, was swimming off in the dock, and she started to drown. She woke with a start and said to my great-great-grandfather, "'Nesley is drowning.' Go out to the dock now. Sure enough, my great-grandma, Nesley, was out in the water, struggling to swim from exhaustion, right next to the fishing dock. My grandma said they pulled her out just in time. In the second story, my great-grandma, Nesley, is all grown up, and my grandma is a little kid at this point. They're living in the suburbs of Columbus, Ohio. My grandma had two older brothers who were preteens at the time, and in the middle of the night, Nesley has a dream. Her son is standing in the middle of the road in his pajamas. Like clockwork, Nesley wakes up with a start and blurts, Gary is standing out on Cleveland Avenue. We have to get him. Needless to say, Gary had a sleepwalking issue and they found him half a mile away on a busy street in the middle of the night. Oh my gosh. I love how she, on Cleveland Avenue. (laughs) Just, yeah. (laughs) It's like a newscaster just blurting out the necessary info as quickly as possible. Amazing. Those two stories were told by my grandmother about her mother and grandmother. Obviously, we talked about how interesting it was in our theories, but then I said, but grandma, these stories weren't about you. They were about your mom and grandma. And then she explained that she had similar experiences of her own. When my grandma Karen was just married to my grandpa, they went on a road trip for their honeymoon. They were driving through New Mexico when my grandma was fast asleep in the passenger seat. She said she had this dream. She dreamt that something huge hit the windshield and it caused their car to lose control and crash violently off the road. My grandma woke at a start. And for an unexplained reason, she said, careful, something is about to hit the windshield. And five to ten seconds later, a spare tire from a semi comes flying into the windshield and nearly breaks it in the process. My grandma thinks if she hadn't warned my grandpa, he might have startled and have wrecked the car. 
my grandma did have a second dream, and I will tell you at the end of the story. After hearing these stories, I got to thinking. My grandma had two kids, and they were both girls. I wonder if the maternal gift was passed on. I called up my aunt, and she occasionally said she had some deja vu dreams, but nothing too significant. And then I called my mom. She didn't seem to recall anything at first, and then she realized she had one very interesting experience. A couple months prior, my mom had this dream. She saw a friend of hers in high school, visibly upset, standing next to a hospital bed. In the bed was her teenage daughter, who was in critical condition and hooked up to many monitors. My mom said she wrote it off and thought it was really weird because she was barely even friends with that person in high school, more of an acquaintance, really, and that she really didn't think she had kids. Well, a couple of days roll around, and my mom is scrolling the Facebook news feed, and she stumbles across a post by her high school friend. Send prayers for my daughter. We're in a tough spot right now, but we're looking to God to keep us going. Turns out this friend did have a daughter, and she had been in a car wreck that was so bad that it put the girl in a temporary coma. Yes, the girl survived and is okay okay today. It freaked my mom out, but she had never told anyone for the fear that they would think she was crazy, and she felt like she didn't know her acquaintance enough to tell her without making it awkward. After that story, I went to I went back to sleuthing. My parents only had two kids, me, the older brother, and my little sister. Well, like I said before, I'm not super grounded, and besides, it wouldn't line up with my maternal line theory. So I went to my sister. I asked her if she had any dreams that ever came true, and she said not really. I told her the stories I'd heard, and she found them really interesting. A couple of days later, she texted me out of the blue and said, actually, I just remembered something. For backstory, my sister is still in high school and just finally started her first relationship as she has high standards, and despite boys chasing her for years, she has been very picky. Good for you, girl. (laughs) She told me that she had a dream that her boyfriend, who was very mellow and non-confrontational, was at school when he got in a fight with another student and got really hurt. Then, the day before I texted her, she went to her boyfriend's high school soccer game, and in the middle of the game, he severely injured his back due to another player. He was so angry that he was very close to fighting the guy, which is super out of character for my sister's boyfriend. My sister and I were having a mind-blown moment when I told her the final story my grandma told me, the one that has yet to come true and still freaks us all out. My grandma had a second dream when my mom and my aunt were kids. It was a reoccurring dream where my mom or my aunt, she couldn't quite tell, was riding their bicycle when they lost control going down a steep hill. They couldn't use their brakes, and they were hit by a car at the bottom of the hill, and they died. Lucky for my grandma, my mom and my aunt grew up, and nothing ever happened. Also, they never really lived near hills, so it just didn't fit the dream. My grandma forgot about it until my cousin, Ryland, started to ride a bike. See, my sister never really looked like my mom or my aunt as a kid, but my cousin Rylan looks like a combination of the two. Due to my aunt being very busy with work, my grandma comes to help watch my cousin during some weekdays. She loves riding her bike, and my grandma goes out to watch her. One day, my grandma was watching my cousin ride when she had this really disturbing realization. One, Rylan looks like the girl in those dreams. Two, they always ride the bike at the top of the driveway because the first 20 feet of the driveway is flat, and then the other 40 feet is an extremely steep grade. Three, the bottom of the driveway is shaded by trees, so it's hard to see if if and when cars are coming. Four, the bike my cousin rides is a weird trainer bike. You just push with your feet, and there are no pedals and no brakes. These factors make my grandma extremely paranoid about letting her ride her bike. One time I was visiting and supervising her bike riding, and she constantly asked me to let her go down the hill. As you can understand, it gives me the creeps just thinking about letting her ride her bike out there, but my aunt doesn't really take any of these stories seriously. What? 
So that's my long-winded story. Clearly, my mom's bloodline has some sort of warning dreams built into them. Interested to see if my sister ends up with a daughter someday, if she'll have abilities too. Keep on spooking, Matt. Okay. How can you not take the stories seriously? There are yeah. – it's not like there's just one or two stories. There's a plethora of them. And they all – this is exactly what we were saying most premonitions don't have. It's specifics. Mm -hmm. It's all about family. Yeah, they like – have way more details than most do. Yeah. Like drowning by the side of this specific dock mm -hmm. or standing out on this specific road or the trainer bike with the steep decline. Like it's all – it's you can yeah. pinpoint and you can point and say that's that's what this is. I really so I would trust everything that they say. I know. I really hope that last one does not come true. My God, me neither. That's horrible. Just put up a fence or something. Yeah, I do. What I love about these premonitions, though, is that like they've actually been used to help things, like help family members. Like they saved her daughter from drowning. They prevented her, their son from wandering who knows how far. Right. And then the the tire hitting the windshield like prevented them, like just because she woke up and said, "There's something about to hit us." Like they didn't spin off and go off the road. It makes you wonder, or makes me wonder, what. Or where these dreams come from, where these premonitions come from. Is it simply right. that some people are more in tune with the spiritual world or just like what's going on around them and can sense these energies or like sense what's going on before it happens? Or is it some intervention from like maybe another, the great, great, great grandmother or something right. that's like, oh, I need to watch over all of my living family members and provide right. all of these warnings. Right. Like the spirit guides. Because spirit right. guides do a lot of like preventative slash protective things. So like, mm -hmm. and in the in the story with Sharon Tate and and Paul, the ghost who came back and was connected to the vision and premonition, like was he giving it to her? Do ghosts do spirits have the ability to give those visions? I don't know. It's, I don't know either. But it is cool, and I think it's very cool. I think it's probably a combination of both. Okay, I have one. Okay. This is from Sabrina. Oh, I wrote you a story. I've never had a premonition, though. <laughs> she said, I'm only starting your podcast, so by now you're probably quite popular and maybe you don't get every email anymore, but I'll try it anyway. Here we are. We got it. We get mm -hmm. every email. Guys. Send them all. Send them. Send them all. It's only the two of us in our inbox, so yeah. things should not go missing. No, they don't. I recently listened to your dream episode, so I have a story for you, which is the single-handedly scariest thing that ever happened to me. When I was 16 and had my learner's license, I started having a recurring dream that I was driving up to an intersection and my brakes don't work, so I can't stop at the red light slash stop sign. In my dream, I'm so unprepared and scared, I can't stop, and eventually I crash. Ugh. I eventually told my mom about this dream because it was making me scared when I was trying to learn to drive. And finally, I got my license, and the day of, my dad and I went to a used car dealer that's owned by a friend of my dad's. And I bought this crappy-looking 1994 Buick LeSabre for $1,000, and we left for home. Oh I was God. following my dad. We come up to the town that I lived in, and there is only one intersection in that town. Coming up to it, I start to slow down, and the brakes had nothing to them. I slammed on the brakes, and I barely slowed down at all. So, of course, I start to panic because I instantly knew my dreams were coming true. Oh, my God. 
lucky for me, the light was green going up to it. So I just cruised right through oh it. Oh, my gosh. And I pulled into the gas station, planned on getting gas anyway. And I was able to stop the car by throwing it into park because the e-brake also didn't work. No. My dad pulled up too and I told him what happened. And it seems the brake lines were busted. We called my dad's friend that I bought the car from and he towed it and he got it fixed. But honestly, I was so grateful for my dreams because I feel like I was so used to it in my dreams that it kept me from panicking more, which would have been very bad. The best part of all of this is that I told my mom about the dreams before the event actually ended up happening. Oh, my God. And when I tell people this story, I always worry people will think I'm exaggerating. But my mom is my witness and she can back me up. Heck, yes. I don't know how that happens, but it's creepy either way. After that day, I've never had that dream again. Sabrina. Because it wasn't a dream. It was a premonition. That is – wow. That's terrifying. But I like how she said the fact that – her premonition or this dream could not stop what was going to happen, but it better prepared for her for yeah. handling that situation. Which is similar to what we were just saying about Matt's story too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, want- to know – to because if she had panicked and she just got her license and she's alone in a brand new car that she's never driven before. Right. It would be very easy to just in a desperate measure crash into something or just, just to, keep yeah. going until – yeah. Like, not to think, oh, I need to pull off of the road into a parking lot and try every attempt to stop this car. Yeah, I was just trying to think what I would do, and I think I would, like, veer off into something. Me too. To prevent hurting anyone else. I've thought about that all the time. I'm like, oh, I would try to point – I would try to hit, like, a tree on the very tip of my passenger side, like, if I'm alone. exactly. Furthest point from me, but also effectively stopping the car. Oh, it's so scary. I don't know. I wonder if there's research on that. Like, what do you do? What's the best way to stop your car? Yeah, I don't know. I We should look that – I should look that up because I should know. You should look that up. I should know. <laughs> <laughs> I should know everything about yes. cars. No. Well, if you guys know anything, any advice for Sabrina, or if you guys have spooky, scary, or heartwarming paranormal experiences of your own or that your family members or friends have, you can email them to us yes. at two girls one ghost podcast at gmail.com. I want to know more of your premonitions. Tell me yes, everything. Tell us your premonitions. Can you see into the future and tell us where we will be in two years? Do you see yourself going onto iTunes and reading and reviewing? I see it in your future. I see you following us on social media. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. We also have Patreon and we have merch. Buying merch is also in your future. Highly likely that you will be buying it. (laughs) And also, if you want to support us, you can support our sponsors. I realize that some people, because we have a lot of friends that ask us Mm -hmm. about sponsors, so people don't really understand exactly how it happens or how it works. But at least in our cases, if you support our sponsors, we don't make any money from your purchases with the sponsors but those sponsors are more likely to work with us in the future Mm -hmm. and buy ad slots so when you support them it directly is supporting us and our future correct and we also you know along with patreon these ads are what supports the podcast like making the podcast takes a lot of time and money and we do it all for free for you guys like podcasts are free to listen to so having these ads Thank and these goodness. sponsors yeah seriously but having these <laughs> ads, i just a lot of them but these ads and sponsors make it possible for us 
Oh, wait, before we say, before we say that, I need to say thank you to Eric Foster at Upfire Digital, who edits all of our podcasts, our regular episodes. It really, that also saves us so much time and supporting us and supporting our sponsors helps us pay him too. And we will see you on the other side. Very spooky.